0: A couple of episodes ago, I told you about skunks and their highly effective chemical defense, but skunk musk is limited. Once they use it, it takes a week or more to replenish their supply. But thinking about skunks got me thinking about a couple of other animals that are built more for defense than for offense, armadillos and porcupines. Now, both of these animals are primarily nocturnal, and the North American species both have a somewhat restricted range in the United States, which makes them a bit elusive, although road-killed armadillos are a fairly common sight in the southern states. But like the other overlooked animals we've investigated previously, both of these defensive specialists have some amazing characteristics that I think might surprise you. So let's take a closer look, but not too close, at Armadillos and Porcupines. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. There are 21 species of armadillo, all of which originated in South America. The name armadillo in Spanish translates to little armored one, which is a very accurate description of the armadillo. The Aztec name for them, however, translates to turtle rabbit, which you've got to love. And knowing that, I will now never be able to not think of them as turtle rabbits. That said, they're not related to either turtles or rabbits, but they're most closely related to anteaters and sloths. All armadillos share some common traits, most obviously their armor-like shell. Some species are distinguished by the number of hinged bands in their armor. Three-banded armadillos can actually roll themselves into a ball when threatened, just like a pill bug, but other species have too many bands to be able to do this. Their armor is formed by plates of bone covered in small overlapping scales called scutes, which are composed of keratin, which is remarkably similar to a turtle shell, Keratin, by the way, is the same thing that makes up your fingernails. The top of the head, the upper parts of the limbs, and the tail are also armored. The belly is not armored, but covered in soft skin and fur. They are, after all, mammals. While their armor provides some protection, they generally flee from predators, escaping into thorny vegetation or by digging to safety. They have short legs, but they can be pretty quick when properly motivated. Armadillos have poor eyesight and rely primarily on their sense of smell to hunt. Now, their diet varies depending on the species, but consists mostly of insects, grubs, and other invertebrates. Some species feed almost entirely on ants and termites. Armadillos have long claws for digging, and they put them to use digging for food or constructing burrows. Like possums, armadillos have low body temperature, between 91 and 97 degrees, which presumably makes them resistant to diseases like rabies. However, armadillos are one of the few known animals that can contract leprosy and can be a vector for the disease, although transmitting that infection is relatively rare since one would need to either come into contact with or eat an undercooked infected armadillo. They can also carry a tropical parasite that causes something called chagas disease, which, if untreated, can result in heart disease and digestive system damage. Armadillo shells have traditionally been used to make the back of the charango, which is an Andean lute instrument, and armadillos are eaten in parts of Central and South America. In fact, they're sometimes raised for food and are a traditional ingredient in dishes in Oaxaca, Mexico. The meat is said to taste like high-quality pork. During the Great Depression, nine-banded armadillos were consumed in the southern United States, and they became known as Hoover Hogs by people angry with then-President Herbert Hoover, feeling that he was responsible for the economic state of the nation. Now, like I said, there are 21 species of armadillo, and although they share some characteristics, they range in size. The smallest is the adorably named Pink Fairy Armadillo, Only growing about six inches long, these desert-adapted armadillos are found in the plains, dunes, and scrubby grasslands of central Argentina. On the other end of the scale, literally, is the giant armadillo, a name that's less cute but much more on the nose. The giant armadillo is found throughout northern South America down to northern Argentina. As the name suggests, giant armadillos get quite large, typically weighing up to about 70 pounds or more and measuring nearly five feet long from nose to tail. The largest wild giant armadillo ever recorded weighed nearly 120 pounds and one captive giant armadillo reached nearly 180. Now that is a big turtle rabbit. My favorite species of armadillo based solely on the name is the Screaming Harry Armadillo. I always thought that would make a great name for a band. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Screaming Harry Armadillo! Found in Central and Southern South America, they're named for both the sparse hair that grows over the top of their armor, more than any other member of their species, and their tendency to squeal when handled by humans or attacked by predators. They also have longer ears than other armadillos. The species of armadillo found in the United States also happens to be the most widespread, the nine-banded armadillo, named, obviously, for the nine bands on its shell. Nine-banded armadillos range from Central South America, north up into the south and southeastern United States. Interestingly, the nine-banded armadillo is a relative newcomer to the United States. It was introduced into Florida in the late 1800s, but at the same time, it crossed the Rio Grande from Mexico into Texas. By 1995, it was well-established in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, and it had been sited in Kansas, Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, and South Carolina. By 2005, armadillos could be found in the southern parts of Nebraska, Illinois, and Indiana, and by 2009, it had reached Omaha, Nebraska, and southern North Carolina. And it's not done yet. It's projected to continue expanding its range until it reaches as far north as Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Further expansion will be limited by the armadillo's poor tolerance of cold temperature. It lacks insulating fat, and it doesn't hibernate. But as we face a warming climate, that could always change. Other reasons for the armadillo's success in the United States are a high reproductive rate and few natural predators. When confronted by a predator, the nine-banded armadillo will generally flee, but if that fails, it will quickly dig a shallow trench and lodge itself inside. Predators are rarely able to dislodge the animal once it's burrowed in and will abandon their prey when they can't breach the armadillo's armor or get a hold of its tapered tail. Now, nine-banded armadillos are frequently seen as roadkill and they're particularly vulnerable to that because of several reasons. One, they're nocturnal two, they're relatively slow-moving, and three, they have a tendency to jump three to four feet straight up when startled, which ends up with them colliding with the undercarriage or bumpers of vehicles. Like other armadillos, nine-banded armadillos are generally insectivores. They forage by thrusting their snouts into loose soil and leaf litter and frantically dig in an erratic pattern, stopping occasionally to dig up beetles, which are most of their prey, but also grubs, ants, termites, and worms. They can detect prey through eight inches of dirt with their sensitive noses. Then they lap up the insects with their sticky tongues. Nine-banded armadillos have been observed rolling around on ant hills to dislodge and consume the resident ants, especially fire ants. They can consume up to 40,000 fire ants in a single feeding. And if you've ever accidentally stepped on a fire ant mound... That alone should make you appreciate them, and I speak here from experience. They supplement their diet with amphibians, small reptiles, and occasionally bird eggs and baby mammals. Occasionally, they might also eat carrion, but they're probably more attracted to the maggots on the carcass than on the meat itself. Less than 10% of an armadillo's diet is non-animal matter, but fungi, tubers, fruits, and seeds are sometimes eaten. While the burrowing and digging of armadillos can cause minor damage to plants, many animals will take advantage of the abandoned armadillo burrows, including skunks, snakes, and burrowing owls. The fan-tailed warbler, a small songbird, has also been documented following armadillos to feed on the insects that they disturb. Nine-banded armadillos' mating and reproduction is also pretty interesting. First of all, the males... (coughs) let's just say appendage, is one of the largest in the animal kingdom compared to its body size, measuring anywhere from 30 to 60 percent of its body length. To compare that to humans, it would be like having somewhere between 20 and 40 inches worth. Only a single egg is fertilized, but implantation is delayed three to four months to make sure that the young are born at a good time. Once the zygote is implanted, it splits into four identical quadruplets connected by a common placenta. When they're born, they weigh only about three ounces and they'll remain in the burrow nursing from their mother until they're about three months old. Average life expectancy of a nine-banded armadillo is 12 to 15 years. But I wanna go back to the nine-banded armadillo crossing the Rio Grande and what may be, in my opinion, one of the coolest things about them. Nine-banded armadillos have two ways of crossing a river. One way is to float across. They do this by inhaling and inflating their intestines, kind of like having an internal life vest. The other way is to sink to the bottom and run across the riverbed. Nine-banded armadillos can hold their breath for up to six minutes, an adaptation that evolved to allow them to keep their snouts submerged in soil for extended periods of time while foraging. How cool is that? Now, ironically, the range of the North American porcupine has very little overlap with the range of nine-banded armadillos. The North American porcupine is found throughout Canada and the western United States, south to Mexico, and in the eastern United States, it can be found in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, and New England. The name porcupine roughly translates from Latin or Old Italian as thorn pig, turtle rabbits and thorn pigs. What more could you ask for? Now, maybe you've heard the terms old-world porcupine and new-world porcupine, which is a way of differentiating between porcupines in the eastern hemisphere and those in the western hemisphere. Old-world porcupines range over the south of Europe, most of Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. Interestingly, while both old and new-world porcupines are rodents and have quills, they are not actually otherwise closely related. Now I'm going to share some key differences, but mainly I'm going to focus on the North American porcupine. Now like I just mentioned, porcupines are rodents. In fact, they are the second largest in North America, behind beavers and third largest in the world. An adult North American porcupine is between two and a half and four feet long and weighs somewhere between 15 and 25 pounds. Porcupines are usually dark brown or black in color with white highlights. Now there's a theory that porcupines, along with skunks, wolverines, and possibly even raccoons and badgers, benefit from having a high-contrast black-and-white coloration because it lets other animals distinguish them and therefore avoid them in the dark of night. But there's not really any good evidence to support this claim, so it might just be speculation. Like the armadillo's shell, the porcupine's most obvious feature, of course, is its coat of quills. An adult North American porcupine has about 30,000 quills that cover all of its body except for its underbelly, face, and feet. Quills are modified hairs covered in keratin, there's kind of a theme here, and formed into sharp, barbed, hollow spines. One of the major differences between old and new world porcupines is how the quills are grouped. The quills of old-world porcupines are embedded in clusters, where in new-world porcupines, single quills are interspersed with bristles, under fur, and hair. Now, quills are primarily used for defense, but they also help provide insulation during the winter. Normally, the quills are flattened against the body, and in this position, they're harder to dislodge. Contrary to popular myth, porcupines can't throw their quills at a threat. When threatened, they contract muscles that make the quills stand up and out from their bodies, and in this position, they detach easily, usually to the dismay of whatever unfortunate creature they're now embedded in. That said, like skunks, porcupines will do everything they can to warn a potential threat to stay away. Often when they raise their quills, they shiver to make them rattle against each other, along with chattering their teeth. Also like skunks, they have the ability to produce a strong odor, although they don't spray it like skunks do. This odor has been described as smelling like body odor, goats, or smelly cheese. And it's generated by a patch of skin called the rosette, which is located on the lower back where modified quills broadcast the smell. Porcupines will also climb trees to escape danger. However, if all that fails to deter a would-be aggressor, the porcupine will turn its back and run backwards or even sideways at the threat, swinging its tail towards the attacker's face. The barbed ends of the spines lodge into the flesh and are difficult and painful to remove. An animal that's been pincushioned by a porcupine can actually die if the quills pierce deep enough to damage internal organs or as a result of swelling or infection caused by the injury. New quills will grow in to replace any that are lost. Now, porcupines need these quills because they're nearsighted and slow-moving, which, combined with being nocturnal, is again why they're often killed by vehicles. In addition to being good climbers, porcupines are also good swimmers, since their hollow quills keep them afloat. On summer days, they often rest in trees, and they don't hibernate in winter but will stay close to their dens. The strength of the porcupine's defenses lets it live a solitary life and researchers believe that this is one of the reasons why porcupines can not only learn complex mazes, but remember the solution for over three months. Now, the diet of the porcupine changes with the seasons. During the summer, they eat twigs, roots, stems, berries, and other vegetation. In the winter, they eat mainly conifer needles and tree bark. Mating happens in the fall, and during mating, they keep their quills flat against their body to avoid injuring each other. Porcupines have an exceptionally long gestation period compared to other rodents, nearly seven months. The gestation period of the beaver, for example, is closer to four months, and gray squirrels gestate in only about six weeks. Porcupines have only a single offspring each season, but they have a life expectancy of about 30 years. Now, there aren't many animals that regularly prey on porcupines. The main predators of porcupines are fishers and mountain lions. Fishers are a cat-sized carnivore that belong to the same family as weasels and badgers. Now, fishers have two advantages that make them capable of hunting porcupines. First, they're agile tree climbers, so they can force a fleeing porcupine out of a tree and onto the ground where it's more vulnerable. When the porcupine presents its hindquarters and tail to the fisher, the fisher circles and attempts to attack. After repeated attacks, the porcupine can tire out and weaken, which allows the fisher to flip it over and attack the quill-less belly. Mountain lions, on the other hand, don't avoid the quills so much as they try to avoid being impaled by too many. Mountain lions have been found with dozens of quills embedded in their gums with no apparent ill effects. Like the fisher, Mountain lions can climb trees, but its preferred method is to get below the porcupine and knock it out of the tree to the ground, often killing or injuring it in the process. When it comes to human interactions, porcupines are frequently viewed as pests because they can damage trees as well as wooden and leather items. Porcupines are infamous among backpackers for their love of salt and are known to gnaw on boots left outside of tents overnight, probably for the salt from the sweat. They have a similar reputation among forestry workers for trying to eat sweat-soaked gloves and wooden tool handles. Plywood is especially vulnerable because salts are added during the manufacturing process. And, of course, they cause injuries to domestic dogs who get too close. Now, historically, porcupine quills and guard hairs were used by Native American tribes to decorate things like baskets, clothing, bags, and knife sheaths. Quills were often dyed before being sewn on. Lakota women harvested quills by throwing a blanket over the porcupine and retrieving the quills left behind. And porcupines were an important food source for Canada's indigenous people, especially in winter. A few final fun facts about porcupines. Porcupines are the only native North American mammal with antibiotics in its skin. This helps prevent infection when a porcupine falls out of a tree and is stuck with its own quills when it hits the ground. It sounds ridiculous. But porcupines actually fall out of trees fairly often because they're tempted by the succulent buds and tender twigs at the end of the branches. Falling out of trees is actually a significant source of mortality for adult porcupines. Imagine walking through the forest and being hit by a falling porcupine. And with that image in your head, I'll end this episode. Thank you as always for listening. You can follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future episode, feel free to reach out to me via email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to support future episodes, please check out my Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest i'm your host tim the nature nerd o'hara reminding you to go outside and get dirty but watch out for falling porcupines The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.